0: Welcome to episode 147 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast of opinions made up of four Linux enthusiasts talking about our passion for Linux. I'm Zeb, and with me today are the stalwarts of Linux, Ryan, Noah, and Michael. Ryan, how has your week been?
1: Well, my week has been amazing, but I want to start with, you know, our opening of this podcast of opinions made up of four of the greatest minds, did you change that because we got a little bit of a razzing from Popey yesterday?
0: No, I changed it because we changed the ending. So I thought, let's change the beginning. Well,
1: Popey, uh, we were all we of course we had game night yesterday, which was incredible for the DLN network. And we had everybody showing up and gaming and Popey showed up and he, he took issue with saying we're the four of the greatest minds, because he said, Noah and Ryan, absolutely. Um, but everyone else probably not. So that I thought was really interesting. I
0: don't and recall that part of the conversation. I may
1: have added that a little bit of uh, info <laughs> yeah, to just that, a tad. but yeah, <laughs> I'm just wondering if you changed. No, my week's been amazing. So I have the PineBook Pro here, and I did a live unboxing of the PineBook Pro for everybody, and I thought that would be pretty unique, so everybody could see, you know, my reaction and be able to experience the PineBook Pro at the exact same time that I was. It was punishment, of course, sitting there waiting uh, with that package (laughs) for my stream to start, Um, but it's been a real joy. This is such a nice little laptop here. So for the holiday season, for kids, for you, for travel, those type of things, check out the Pinebook Pro, although you're probably going to have a hard time getting one because as I understand it, they are basically flying out of inventory faster than they can keep up, which is a good sign for Linux hardware and shows there's Mm -hmm. a huge market. Uh, For this device, but I will be doing some videos on this and you can see that we're not running the base Debian custom Debian that they have installed the Manjaro team reached out through Lucas and said hey Give Ryan this sneak peek preview earlier in the week of Manjaro that we're making custom for the Pinebook Pro And so this is what I've been playing with and it is Amazing, so be on the lookout for a video on that
0: And, you know, my favorite part of that um, unboxing is you're doing your typical launching empty boxes behind you. (laughs) And I thought he's going to get to the Pine Book and it's going to be so light. He's going to launch it behind him, not realising it was in the packaging. But you discovered it at the last minute.
1: Yeah. And somebody did a quote on my uh, YouTube video because I said, I don't think it came with documentation, but I don't know because I threw all the boxes. (laughs) and That was like their favorite quote. Nice.
0: So Noah, tell us about your week. I've been digging a lot more into
2: privacy. I'm trying to take my privacy more and more seriously. <clears throat> I, um, Ryan, you read Snowden's book, yeah? Yes. So I read Snowden's book. I read Gren, Glenn, Glenn Grinwald's book. I went back and read American Kingpin, which is, uh, if you're not familiar with it, is the book and the story about the Silk Road and the founder and his path. And um, all of them have government, government surveillance, privacy, and the best parts of the Internet being ruined by politicians and lawmakers, yes. uh, it, it has all of that in common. And, and so I, I, I've been spending time um, going through developing different practices for myself. I've been making a lot of use of tails lately. Um, I've also set up a, 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 a tour gateway that I'm funneling all my traffic through now so that I can, get, I can choose which network I wanna be on. Do I wanna be on the public network, which I see is like sitting out in a mall and having a conversation in a mall, or do I wanna browse the internet at my house? And to me, browsing the internet in your house should be a private thing. And sh- it doesn't matter if you have something to hide or not. It's just that should be the default. Like people should right. start to expect not to be able to see into other people's traffic. And So I'm trying to do my part there and spread that word. And, and that's been a lot of fun. And it's uh, it's devolved into what we're going to talk about later in the episode, uh, a, a tip and trick on how to secure your device in a very easy way that all you have to do is just pull a USB device out and it wipes your computer. So if somebody were to come that's up nice. and you know trying to... Uh, and take your laptop away like they did
1: ross you have an answer to that that's pretty cool well what's interesting is the snowden book you talked about and you know i i ask, i tell people look re- you could read the book you don't have to believe everything in there although i think you mentioned even on your show they're really based on all the story and things that he tells not a lot in there you'd go oh that's just somebody given hyperbole um he's he's pretty frank with breathing everything his whole entire family history in a book but regardless, I think everybody should at least read it, and you can, you know, uh, state your own opinions on it. But it is fascinating to look into the operations, kind of the inner workings of how these things um, have grown uncontrollably. And you know, one of the things that makes me very excited is that this book has never. As, as soon as I finished it, it's never been back to my house because people keep loaning it, and then they'll say, "Hey, I finished it. Can I loan it to somebody else?" and These are friends of mine that are not into Linux per se. They're not highly technical individuals, but they are starting to, it seems, in mass understand the importance of privacy, even if you're not doing anything wrong, right? Because there's a lot of people who love to make that quote. Well, I'm not doing anything wrong. I don't care who looks at my stuff. But you also don't leave your doors unlocked, your doors wide open when you leave your home. You you expect a certain amount of privacy. And things, So I, I just, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're diving deep into it because I'm sure you're going to be able to go into areas that I haven't even yet and we can learn from that, but it is something everybody should be taking more and more seriously because it's just, it's out of control how mm. much has happened.
0: For sure, yeah. So Michael, what's new in your world?
3: Uh, quite a few things. We actually did a DLN game night last night and mm. it was awesome. We had it for mm-hmm. uh, Jason and Zeb. You guys were doing it early in the in the day. For it was nighttime your time, but it was daytime our time. So the date when when they kind of merged into one, we did a transitional phase where we had both at night. You know, both doing the game night. It was awesome. We played so many games, including golf with friends, which is actually quite entertaining. Mm-hmm. Even though, Goal. yeah, it's it's one of those games where it, it sounds like it's a ridiculous thing, and you're not going to have much fun on it, but because it's it's digital putt putt, but it's actually quite fun and uh you should definitely check out the live streams that we have up on our channels uh for that part and uh I just want to say that I I did win all of the matches because I'm fantastic um <laughs> but <Unbelievable>. <laughs> I'm
1: <laughs> I'm pretty- But we had some amazing people from the community oh, yeah. join it in the gaming and that's what I want Everyone to focus on is the next time we do this. You know, you guys are invited to come and, and game with us if you're a part of the community. Yeah. Um, but the one reminder is that, of course, family friendly. So even Popey's son and uh, Jason, I think, had um, a, a was it a nephew with him I don't playing. Remember. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but so there there were kids coming in and out. So the reminder here is we're a family friendly show. We want the show mm-hmm. to be something you can listen to in the car and we want, you know, with your family and not have to worry about turning it off. And if you're gonna join something Destination Linux Network is doing, please make sure to keep the content family-friendly, the remarks, and, and those type of things because kids are either playing with us or watching because parents are probably like, hey, those Destination Linux guys always have family-friendly content, so I'll let right. them game with it. And then yep. if come on and start you know, talking a um, certain way, then obviously that, that leaves a bad impression on us. But otherwise, the community was fantastic. We had the greatest time playing games with folks. Michael lost every single game, which was amazing. Um, right. And... Yeah, that's pretty much what happened. Yeah, but no, it was great because we got to do a handoff. And, and Zeb, I streamed for four hours. Mm-hmm. I have to imagine you were up to like six or
0: more. Well, I, I, I started at about half past five, and I guess I gave up at about half past nine. And I was really pleased that I'd lasted four hours because normally with a game like CSGO, I get 20 minutes into it and I'm just starting to feel a bit woozy and a bit sick. Right. I was having so much fun getting shot every two minutes. that I thought well, I'm just going to carry on and, and keep running around. And, and it, it was quite funny because in the end for somebody who was good, I would go first get shot so that they would not see him <laughs> behind me and then they would pop out and shoot them. Yeah, so it you was, became it the was meat shield. really fun. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I became a walking shield and yet yeah, and for, for a game that looks so simple, because, let's face it, you play it like you would do a game of snooker with how much power you're going to put into the club, and then you let go, and it just doesn't do as it's told. It's just amazing game, so much fun, and yeah. the trolling that was going on was just hilarious. <laughs> Epic. It yep. really was great. <laughs> Good night was had by all.
3: Yeah, yeah, it was fantastic. So, Zeb, what was your week like?
0: As well as the, uh, the, the gaming night with uh, all my friends, I've had a great week. Um, And I now have some Destination Linux merch, um, and it's really, really good. And you can get some too by going to destinationlinux.network forward slash store. So what's really good? Excuse me. He's
1: showing off that cup.
0: Oh, look. (laughs) A Destination (laughs) Linux mug. And these sweatshirts are fantastic just don't wear them indoors because it is so hot so please let's just give me a couple of minutes <laughs> now i'd better fold this up otherwise ryan's gonna have them oh
1: look look Super. at that that
0: is awesome and that's I some gorgeous to wear, merch right to there tomorrow on london transport that should be good fun gorgeous
1: yes, swag and you got the shirt there too you got the mug you got the whole so, setup so just even in time i oh. just
0: broke my watch and i'll fix that later
1: so. That's awesome. Very cool stuff.
0: What was also good about my week is um, I was a guest on Linux for Everyone with Jason Evangelo. Um, and we had a great conversation about Peppermint OS. And Jason has now written a couple of articles on Peppermint OS. And I must say a huge thank you to Jason. Um, it has given Peppermint OS a nice little boost. Thank you very much indeed.
1: That's very cool. And you showed up in a Forbes article, Zeb. So you've kind of made it. You're big time now. If you're Ryan, you can go tell your mother that you were in a Forbes article because you've always wanted to be referenced in Forbes. Yeah, exactly. Well, I have one of those, you know, those fake photo booths where you get your picture taken on a Forbes magazine. That's as close as I've gotten to it. But Zeb literally is in the article. So that's pretty cool. Nice.
0: This episode of Destination Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and so much more.
1: By the way, Zeb, did you know that yesterday when everybody was on the Mumble server, they were on DigitalOcean backend? Wow, nice. There you go. And Michael, we also have a bunch of other services running. On DigitalOcean as well. Next cloud services, of course. We have Cloud Ron services that we use on the show. If you're using stuff on the show, you're probably its back end is DigitalOcean.
3: Yeah, even the awesome discourse forum that everybody should join at discourse.destinationlinux.network is on DigitalOcean Droplet.
0: There you go. To make it even better, is you can get all of this plus access to the world-class customer support for as low as five dollars per month. Or you can use their flexible pricing structure if you just want to test something out and see whether it's going to be good for you for as low as 0.7 cents for, per hour. And as Ryan would say, that's darn near free. So, on top of all this goodness, DigitalOcean also has 2000 cloud agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open source software, languages, and frameworks. So get started on DigitalOcean for one month free with a fifty dollar credit. We're going to do.co forward slash dl. Once again, you can get started on DigitalOcean with that fifty dollar credit by going to do.co forward slash dl. And we thank DigitalOcean for supporting this episode.
1: So in our community feedback, we received an email from Tony and he writes, Hi, in episode 145 of Destination Linux, Michael said that Arch announced that Bash was removed from the new base meta package. That is just not true, Michael. And Bash is a part of the new base. I'm sending this just to keep the angry emails coming. This part cracked me up because we made a joke in the last episode about all the angry emails we got about Arch. And so they want to keep it rolling, and I respect that, Tony. And I'm very disappointed at Ryan for letting Michael talk like this in his house. Shame on you, Ryan. I like your <laughs> show and hope you keep up the great work. Regards, Tony. So more angry-ish emails, but more tongue-in-cheek there. But Michael, you got something terribly wrong here. I mean, you must be super ashamed.
3: I'm sorry that I read the notes that Ryan wrote into the notes.
1: <laughs> Dang it, anyways. <laughs> But Michael. actually,
3: I'm pretty sure it did say it on the, the mailing list that they were going to get rid of Bash on that. Uh, it wasn't on the main the article homepage, but it, I'm pretty sure it was on the mailing list thing. But it could have been more of like the situation where they were they were discussing that rather than actually doing it. I don't know. It's hard, it's hard yeah. to pay attention to mailing lists because who reads mailing lists? Exactly.
1: All right, Michael, what else do we have from
3: Community Feedback? Dave writes in, Dear Ryan, Michael, Zeb, and Noah, I am new to Linux and your podcast. My Linux journey began with the purchase of a Raspberry Pi for my 9-year-old son in an attempt to give him an early computer experience like I had with a Commodore 64 when I was his age. That's awesome. Uh, I was so impressed with the Pi that I got sucked into Linux and have been tinkering here and there for mostly weekends for almost a year or so. My question to you is, how can someone determine what open source software to trust? With the recent stories on the use of big data like Facebook, Cambridge Analytica, etc., my eyes are more open to Orwellian data gathering and surveillance by the huge tech companies now. So I get, uh, I get and agree with the skepticism directed at Google, Facebook, Microsoft, etc. However, it is conceivable that open source software developers could produce poor quality code, which compromises security or even malicious code that gathers information or worse. It's like, I'm not a developer, but the, the fact that the source code is available means very little to me because I simply do not have the skills or knowledge to evaluate the code. How can someone like me identify open source uh, the quality of open source hardware and avoid both poor quality and potentially malicious open source software? Are the Snap stores, Flatpaks, and other repository offerings by various Linux distros considered vetted and safe? What if there is something not in the distro repository but on GitHub? So over the past couple of months, my destination Linux, uh, Destination has become a valued tool in my Linux learning journey. Keep up the good work and I would love to know about this uh, security stuff.
0: I'm just gonna jump in from an, from, from my perspective because I'm very much like Dave. I have no idea what code is around there, but what I've learned in the years that I have been around is that there are a bunch of clever people out there like Ryan, Michael and Noah who do know how to look at this stuff. And it is constantly vetted By the community. So I'm happy that this stuff is secure and safe. And I'm sure my my three hosts will now tell you the technical reasons as to why it is generally safe.
2: Actually, I was going to. I was kind of going off of what you were were saying. When I go into a physician's office, I don't expect to walk out of there having completed the equivalent of medical school. When I go into my dentist's office, I don't expect to walk out of there knowing how to fill cavities. And when I go into my lawyer's office, I don't expect to walk out of there with a complete understanding of the law. But what I do expect is that I can go to talented people that have dedicated their lives to that particular industry and get them to come walk alongside me and look at my concerns and then judge if they're valid. And so what I tell people, especially when we do like consulting from a security standpoint, when we get hired to go into a place and people ask that, hey, you're telling me that open source stuff is more secure, but the people from Semantic say that because they keep all of their source code private that even if there was a vulnerability, nobody would know about it. You know, how do you address that? How do you answer that? And my answer to them is is always the same. I'm here as an industry expert to tell you that the, the people that are involved in this in these kinds of things to so take encryption, for example, the people that work on encryption algorithms, the countless interviews with Bruce Schneier and, 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 and big names inside of the inside of the security world that 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 talk about these different encryption algorithms and they try and spend all, you know, all day trying to break these things. And then when they're proven to be sound and, in, and individual audits come about that go in and independently verify the the security of things like Tor and the things like uh, like Tails and things like various encryption formats, those kinds of things you can trust in. So what I would tell you is don't worry about looking at the source. It's useless for you to look at the source because by your own admission, you're not a developer. Instead, do research mm-hmm. into if that open source project has any audits or any review or any code problems that that may have come up. One of the things we're gonna talk about later in this very episode is code that I think is great and it does a really good job and it works on the surface, but there are some things that concern me about it. And I did some digging, I did some looking, and the more I looked, the more my concern was justified. And I said, okay, so there maybe is a real problem here. That's the responsible way, for me anyway, to go about the process of evaluating uh, on is a given open source project valuable is it secure are there vulnerabilities and if so what are my chances and when you start to understand that you know cryfs great encryption algorithm, great for syncing stuff to the cloud. There's no known vulnerabilities in it, but it hasn't undergone an independent security audit. So what does that mean for my practices? Well, that means for my practices that I'll store things on the cloud that I'm willing to be compromised. I'd like to keep them private, but if they got leaked, it wouldn't be the end of the world. Those are the kind of things I'm willing to use CryFS for. If I have documents or if I have files that could not get onto the internet for any sake or reason, for any any possible way, if those were to get leaked, it would be very devastating to my life. Those are the kind of things I'm not going to trust something like CryFS to to protect. In fact, security being ongoing and, and, and ever-changing means that there is no encryption algorithm that we can say is 100% safe. There's no software that we can say is 100% secure. So it's all a, a matter of evaluating your threat potential, evaluating your threat vectors, and then looking at what that threat model looks like as a whole and deciding if that solution meets your needs or not.
1: So So that's what I would tell you. I would agree with everything you said. I think it was beautifully done, except for the part, don't look at the code or, you know, you don't, you're not going to know anything from the code. So don't go look at it. Um, I actually think people should look at the code, Mm -hmm. even if you don't know what you're necessarily looking for, because in the instances that Linux has actually been hit with certain vulnerabilities, generally like Bitcoin mining type of stuff, or I think happened maybe a year ago or so, uh, was literally they put in the code, something about Bitcoin mining in the comments. So anybody Mm -hmm. who read that would see it. And one of the cool things to do as well is go onto the GitHub pages um, or GitLab, wherever they're storing the open source code and just looking at the comments of people there because you'll see how many people are engaged with that project. And if I see a project that looks like a ghost zone, I'm probably not a ghost town. That is, I'm probably not going to install it because number one, I don't Mm -hmm. know if it's being supported And number two, I don't know if anybody's actually who's smarter than me in the code looking at it to see if there's any existing vulnerabilities and things. And then third, what's really cool option, and some people would look at this as an annoyance and some people like this, is when you're in Arch and you're using Pac-Man, you have the option when you're installing something to review the code right there. Now, a lot of people have made jokes I've heard saying, yeah, nobody does that. I actually do. Uh, if it's a package I've never installed before, I will go look through the scripts and things that they have there because it gives you the option while you're installing, do you want to look through the code? And it's really not. You'll start to see patterns that difficult, even if you're not a coder, to start spotting what they're doing in, in, in a lot of cases, which is basic bash scripting um, text that that they're executing through there to know what they're pulling in, what dependencies they're grabbing, and that information so it's kind of like when people used to say nobody reads terms and conditions and now privacy-minded folks are starting to read those terms and conditions same thing goes with your software i think you should look at it for the most part linux is safe but i guarantee you the second there's a vulnerability out there it's going to be all over the news everybody's going to go crazy and go oh my gosh look linux wasn't safe everybody said it was safe but that, like Noah was saying, nothing is one hundred percent secure, and I believe even um, you know Poppy and others have said Ubuntu doesn't look through every single package. It's impossible that they that they even put up. So nobody is nobody, no individual organization or group is able to scrub an individual piece of software to tell you it's one hundred percent safe. Again, just, from, a, just, from just, a, just
2: one just one one point of correction, real quick. So what I what I was I I, I didn't mean don't. You know, shield your eyes from the code I guess I wasn't saying that i just I would never want anybody that doesn't have experience looking through code to rely on their assessment of the code for security yeah, if I you agree. don't if you don't understand what those programming functions do if you're not familiar with the language it, it's not a bad idea there's nothing wrong with looking through the code, but I just don't believe that it's something that you can use with any any discernible certainty of. Yes, this is something that's safe to install, or no, this is not. It's it's more of like uh, it's like your it's like the lottery, right? I'm gonna throw uh, I'll throw a couple coins on the table and just see if I get lucky. If I happen to notice something, right. um, that, that I guess that would be more accurately that's what awesome. I was uh, yeah. what I was trying to say. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So again, just from a um a, 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 a non technical person's point of view, am I right in thinking as well that um, when these people are looking through the this code and they and they do take a lot of time to do it that. There's very rarely any sort of and I don't know if it's the right terminology I'm using here, but sort of any sort of binary blob that you can't decipher. You can always break something down and get to that text version that somebody will understand. If it's open source, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. So you have to see what it is they're programming
3: the open source aspect is more likely secure than a proprietary aspect because you no one can look at the code in proprietary you don't have any idea if it's if it's secure or safe or whatever whereas open source doesn't necessarily mean it is inherently safer it just means that it's more likely to be because it can be vetted versus not being impossible to be embedded, to be vetted so uh, but in the question of the repos, No, they're not necessarily vetted just because they're in the repos. They're more of like tested to see if they can compile and work on the system, but they don't go through the code and like, you know, check the security for everything. Um, And that's also because there's like thousands of packages. There's no way they could actually do that. Uh, So basically no distro does that. Uh, But there are other situations where, like, for example, snaps and flat packs, there is a security functionality in that, so that they're separated in a way. Uh, snaps more so in the sense of how they're all containerized and separated. Um, so like there's not really containerized, but containment system. Uh, so it allows you to have more. You know, you can you can install something and not have to worry that much as in in comparison to like when you got the the crypto cur, crypto miner thing that was in the snaps wasn't a catastrophic thing because you could just pull that data out of the snaps, rebuild the snap. And that's what Canonical did. They just rebuild the snap and it's back and everybody got the new version without the crypto mining and it didn't actually affect their system in any way. So like there's, there's things like that that apply, but open source doesn't necessarily mean that it's, open, it's safer. It just means it's more likely to be safer. And I'd also say that you shouldn't look at the term open though, like open source specifically. Sure but that is actually becoming a marketing tool tool that is used by various different companies to claim that they're claiming they're open and they're not remotely
1: open. They're just, they're open-ish, I guess. We used a portion of open source... In our closed source software. So then on their webpage, they'll say open source.
3: Yeah, they'll, they'll, then, it's, you know. I like the term because it's called open washing. So they're like pretending that it's open and it's not. So, you know, be careful about that. But if it's in one of the repos, it's going to be definitely open source, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's been vetted. So uh, you definitely need to, I agree with it with Noah, check to see if it has been vetted and uh, definitely check to see if the code has any kind of like, I you know, obvious red flags
1: well to clarify again michael though if you if you're thinking of repos just because you know some people might think snaps are repos you would have proprietary software in there
3: that's true you would have proprietary software uh though in the terms of like privacy that doesn't necessarily mean that you have security wise even proprietary in snaps is fine because it can't jump to other pieces of your system because of the containment system however uh, privacy wise, there's really no way to tell because they could be scanning stuff. So, yeah, snaps is more of like a format that makes it more likely to just to be better secure. But, privacy wise, b- proprietary still has an issue if you have no idea if it's sending stuff back or not. You can check, yep. you can actually check through your network and see if something is sending like with a pie hole or something like that. But even then, you really can only guess or assume what they're doing if it's proprietary. So, you know it doesn't necessarily mean it's 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 more safe or more private but it's a thousand times more likely to be versus the proprietary options
2: greg writes into the show and says hello destination linux and family my name is greg i've been watching destination linux since episode 90. i use a lot of ubuntu and Arch-based distros on my computers i love watching the show to get new ideas for computer experiments and it also helps me to pass the time during my day since I'm a disabled US Army veteran and unable to work. Thanks for all you do for the Linux community and keep up the great work. Sergeant Greg, thanks for writing in and letting us know. We appreciate uh, your service. We appreciate what you've done for the country and we appreciate the fact that you use Linux helping keep the country safe. In fact, I would imagine that using Linux, especially if you're ever stationed overseas, would be. Something that would be immensely useful, right? Can you imagine if you bought a laptop to stay in contact with your loved ones, you go over to Iraq, Afghanistan, wherever, and you're sitting out in the middle of nowhere, and all of a sudden, uh, with no internet connection, you get a pop-up that says, hey, your hard drive died or your RAM died or whatever, you swapped it, and it seems like a different system. You have to reactivate Windows. <laughs> I mean, I I can't even imagine. So the yeah. ability to just have a flash drive and say, "Hey, my computer guys, I'll well, just plug it and reinstall." I don't have internet; doesn't matter. I just plug it and reinstall, and uh, and have access to that technology would be really cool. So I'm glad that there there are people in the military that are doing that, and uh, and and of course, people that are that are paying attention to the show and, and listening and being part of the community. We we really appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Well, Greg mm-hmm. is a U.S. Army Third Battalion, Seventy Fifth Ranger Regiment. Rangers lead the way, so this is a bad individual in the coolest way possible. <laughs> in a and, good way, yeah. And yeah. he says, "By the way, I use Arch." So there you go. If that's not marketing for Arch, I don't know what. I it was
2: is. gonna say, is that why the email made it into the uh, the room? Because he's an Arch user. It you, may have realize, you realize, but you realize if you looked if you look What's previous up? to that, he don't says, "Don't you call uh, me out." Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, it's awesome although that it is because it's
3: like the, the being a part you know, thank you for your service. We wanted to acknowledge the effort is put into it to, to help the not only the Linux community, but just society, because that's awesome. But I would say that probably the the, the Arch part did help a little.
1: Rangers <laughs> use Arch. That's what you need to take out of this.
0: <laughs> and although what the SEALs I'm use not, Arch. Although not based in America, I would also like to echo that sentiment. Thank you for your service, because any person who's a member of an armed forces who helps defend other people gets my thanks 24 7 thank Absolutely.
1: you so much yep and That's speaking awesome. of it uh nathan wolf in our patron chat here host of dln one of the hosts of dln extend said i learned linux in iraq in 2004 so awesome there you go maybe there's a lot of linux going around the armed forces so thank you for your service
0: so we love hearing from our worldwide community. Those three emails are perfect examples of a simple question, short and precise, leads us into great topics of discussion. We have many ways for your voice to be heard. You can send us a short email or video that may be incorporated into the show. If you send use your Ar- video links, say again?
1: Nothing. Go ahead. He said if you use arch. It- <laughs>
0: He does it every week to me. Send your video links or emails to comments at destinationlinux.org.
3: Up first in the show, in the news section, we have canonical pledges support for Raspberry Pi 4, which is awesome. Uh, We know certain flavors of Ubuntu, like uh, Ubuntu Mate, have been working on Uh, having a Raspberry Pi version and other ARM device versions. Uh, But this is now the support is going official. Uh, Canonical announced that they are officially supporting the Raspberry Pi 4. And in the article, they state that Raspberry Pi has established itself as the most accessible platform for innovators. And so they will enable both Ubuntu Core and Ubuntu Server on existing and upcoming boards, which is awesome, and they the, one of the things that it's uh, you know it's really cool because we just talked about in the community feedback that they somebody got started because they were using the Raspberry Pi with their kids to, to learn learn Linux that that way. So this is a fantastic example. Of, yes, it is one of the most uh, you know innovative pl- platforms that allows you to easily. Get and be more accessible to everybody. So that's awesome.
1: Yeah, ARM is a powerful, powerful architecture, and uh, I think that you know having this Pinebook Pro and playing with it, and of course all the time I've spent with Raspberry Pis proves that how powerful it is. It was really interesting. Before the show, I was looking up because I just hadn't heard. Does Windows even have an operating system that works on ARM? And apparently, I think ten. Do- I think ten does. Yeah, and apparently it's, they do. I just don't know if version. anybody actually. Uses yeah. it right because you don't. You don't in any videos, even people who do content on YouTube that's non-Linux related. You don't see them. I've never seen it except for Microsoft themselves. The videos they've put out because I was looking at those for their ARM version. But this is an area where I think Linux just dominates, and it just makes sense mm-hmm. that it does because it's so lightweight, because it's so versatile. But uh, one of the issues that you're going to come across if you get a Pinebook Pro, or even if you're trying to use a Raspberry Pi, or any of these ARM-based devices as your primary, is there is a lot of software that's still not compatible with ARM. So, for instance, you know you're going to have a really hard time getting Caden Live to work, I've, as I've found in any of even the Manjaro ARM uh, or the uh, Debian-based OS version. Whereas, for instance, something like OpenShot does work, and they're are other examples like this where there's just not as much software that you can get readily available. So Canonical throwing their official support behind it hopefully means we'll also get some push into the software packages. And Snap saves the day here, by the way, because there are so many packages from a Snap standpoint you can run that I found, which has helped tremendously in being able to really test out on the Pinebook Pro, for instance, if I could utilize this machine as a primary machine. Now, of course, I don't mean video editing and that things, but primary from you know uh, programming, from being able to uh, write documents, you know, browse the web efficiently and quickly, uh, watch videos and that type of thing on the device. So I'm very happy to see them throw official support behind it, and I hope that means that we're going to get a lot more applications uh, in, in the environment as well. Yeah, absolutely. ARM is one of those
3: awesome <laughs> platforms, but one of the things that makes ARM kind of complicated in doing those support for various applications is that if, if you you can't just support ARM and it work everywhere like x86 can. When you support ARM, you have to basically support it on a particular version of ARM or a particular device. So like sometimes there's overlap and sometimes there isn't. So, like, that's kind of the issue most of the time when you try, like, with the Pinebook, you have a particular version of ARM that's not necessarily related to a Raspberry Pi ARM version, and that kind of thing is what happens.
2: Yeah. Do you think that the application market is everything in ARM, or do you think there's value just in having a competing architecture for people to hack on and develop on? The reason I ask that is because there are so many projects that I've seen that have come up that there's no, if there is an x86 uh, port of it, I, I don't know about it and nobody cares because everybody wants to run it on a Pi because that's why it's cool is you can run it on a $35, you know, Raspberry Pi. It's not a perfect example because there would be some scenarios where you'd run to run this on x86, but Volumio comes to mind, right? The thing that's so great about Volumio isn't the fact that I could run it like as my primary desktop operating system. No, of course not. But it is a great little appliance to throw on there and, and have it run. There's a, another distro I found. I was researching uh, security stuff. That, does, uh, that creates a Tor uh, note, right? Those are the kind of things that are not particularly useful on x86 because the amount of money that you'd have to spend to get an x86 box to do the thing, you wouldn't get any actual extra value of it because it's essentially just doing some complicated firewall rules. So I look at some of that stuff and I, and I have to ask myself, even if it's not for the application development i think there's tremendous value in the in the architecture isn't there
1: no i think that's a very fair statement right i guess that was more of from a standpoint of having seeing some hardware like the pine book pro come out with a laptop which people are going to then expect to be able to like the first questions on my youtube video that people want to follow up video on is can i edit videos on it can i do light video editing on it can i you know can I run this software package on it? They they want to utilize these when when you're taking that kind of really inexpensive ARM-based sock and you're putting it and it's something like a laptop. People are going to expect that they're going to basically be able to do the same functionalities within reason that you would on a Chromebook. Now, is that the application developer's responsibility to do that? Perhaps not, right? And they may not. They just may decide not to make their architecture there. But I think there is going to be. If you look at how Pinebook Pros are flying off the shelves, I think there is going to be a market there on top of what you're saying, Noah, which is absolutely correct, that there's a whole development hacker uh, mentality when you get these devices to begin with where you're not going to be looking to run Caden Live on it. You want to turn it into a pie hole or something else, uh, which is definitely its first application and primary and probably a lot of the focus Canonical is going to have on it. But I think naturally you're going to see people migrating that way as more devices like this one come out. Because this is a very close to open source hardware here. The only thing they couldn't open source was, I believe, the Bluetooth, the Wi-Fi, and there, and there may be one other component. Um, and that's just because if they did that, then you wouldn't have Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. But mm-hmm. everything else is the specs, how they built the machine, all right. of the behind the scenes are all open source on it. So I think there's a big market here for this. And I think the more big names like Canonical that get involved in it, the more it's going to grow. Absolutely. Red Hat 8.1 has been released. Red Hat 8.1 is the
2: new version of their enterprise Linux operating system. And of course, if you are a Red Hat fan, as I am a Red Hat fan, then you understand that when Red Hat 8.1 comes out, Uh, actually, even when Red Hat 8 comes out, it's one of those things that, you know, you got about seven to eight years of where you have to start moving people off of seven and onto eight. So for the next six to seven years, we'll probably get around to that. (laughs) But uh, obviously any new installations would be using 8.1. And while this is a point release, there are some important things uh, from their what they're calling their mission standpoint, since this was the first release as part of their consistent and predictable release cycle. 8.1 was released right on time, and they'll be continuing to stick to the minor releases every six months as the standard. Uh, an interesting quote from Red Hat uh, regarding their release cycle is that the predictable cycle allows for hardware vendors to build next generation offerings with clear Timetable to sync up against when RHEL would be supporting it. And so in modern English, what that means is they're going to uh, they're going to give their plans to all of the hardware manufacturers. So when you go buy a server from Dell and you want to run RHEL 8.1, you're going to have all of the latest features that you need from the from a kernel standpoint and from a software standpoint to support all of the things that Dell is okay. making in that hardware package. Mm-hmm. And I, I think most manufacturers have done a pretty good job of that, particularly with Rel, because there are so many people that are purchasing servers and loading RHEL onto them as they're are people purchasing service and loading Ubuntu onto them. But it's, it's an important function that the software company talks to the hardware company and communicates that message. It's important yes. that the hardware company is aware of that because one of the things that can be very frustrating for system administrators and system integrators and solution providers is you go out to the field, you go to install the server, that network card doesn't quite work right or whatever. You call Dell, they say, oh, it's a Red Hat problem. You call Red Hat, oh, it's a Dell problem. And you go back and forth, right? (laughs) And of course, that would happen with Microsoft and Dell or Microsoft and Lenovo or whatever. What you're seeing here is a... Is is a is a is a very clear intentional effort on Red Hat's part to ensure that you don't experience those kinds of things as a system administrator. I've said I've said this before. I'll say it again. I believe that Red Hat is one of those companies that you know. Back in the '80s, nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. In 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 the in in the 2000s, in, in, 20, in 2019, right now, we're at a point where nobody gets fired for for purchasing RHEL. If you purchase RHEL and put it on quality hardware. You know you're you're doing the best thing you can for your for your IT infrastructure. They've enhanced a CVE or common common vulnerability exploit. Uh, they have remediations and added se- kernel level memory protection along with application whitelisting tech. Finally, with a heavy focus on security, they're adding addition additional uh, container centric SE Linux profiles so you can create more tailored security policies controlling how centralized systems access their. System resources. And uh, if you go back and look at um, some of the interviews I did when we were at Red Hat Summit, um, those are on, I think they're on, I don't think they're on the Asanoa channel, I think they're on the MindRIP Media channel. We go to youtube.com slash MindRIP Media, check out those interviews. And one of the, I think it was Chris Wright that we talked to, and he starts talking about the new security threat model that we now face with these container technologies, right? We originally went to them because we thought, hey, we, package into one thing, we put them into a universal container and now they can run on anything. That's a great idea in principle, but there are some major security things that have to be thought about. And Red Hat is taking a very active approach and going back and revisiting that and trying to make sure that all of those best practices are in place and that everybody that implements those technologies is aware of those best practices. So I think that's pretty cool. So this is the first release that includes the RHEL development cycle that includes projects uh, more directly from Fedora, CentOS, and and sent to us stream. uh, The Red Hat Universal Base Image and Developer Subscription Version. So this is basically, again, we talked about this when when RHEL was first released, but, RHEL 8 was first released, but they're basically going to a, you can get on two different trains, and one train is the fast-moving cycle, and the other one is kind of the slower, more stable cycle, but no matter which train you're on, the base, you have this solid, common base to build upon, and that's always going to be the same for everybody, so they're not giving up any of the reliability and stability that you've come to expect from Reddit. If, If that's you, and that's the kind of user that you are, all of that's still there, it's just now they're adding these additional things so they can compete with the the arch fanboys of the world and the Ubuntu uh, people that have every six months, they want to do that. What they're doing is Red Hat's going to do it better. Red Hat's going to do it faster. Red Hat's going to do it with a bigger backing. And so so that's kind of their answer. And so maybe they'll even get people like Ryan on board. You never know,
1: right? Are you a Red Hat fan? I can't tell.
2: No, I just uh, you know, I have a, I have a healthy appreciation for companies that do a really bang up job in Linux for. It, that's all. I mean, you know. this was really
1: interesting <laughs> to me. Um, you know, generally we don't cover a ton of enterprise level stuff, but what was interesting is if you recall CentOS went um, rolling, right? Or a semi-rolling, I guess you should say. And and a lot of people said, well, wait a minute, that's kind of Fedora's territory where you're going to pull pieces from. And I thought they clarified this pretty well in uh, their discussion. So they break it down like this, Fedora provides an opportunity for developers to engage with the future of Linux kernel and encourage participation to shape the leading edge of the operating system. Whereas CentOS Stream provides an ecosystem developers with a rolling preview of what's next to come on Red Hat Enterprise Linux, so helping them build production application with the future in mind. So if you were confused, like I was, frankly, with where is the break between Fedora now and CentOS, that to me explained it really, really well there.
0: So now we get to a part of the show, of or a part of the show, where there is so much love, it's overwhelming. Because let's face it, Microsoft hearts Linux. <laughs> yep. Aww. So much so, yep. So much so that they're going to give us a copy of their Edge browser. Yes. So yes! now we can all run Microsoft Edge on Linux. Isn't we too on, can right? use
3: Edge to download Firefox?
0: But it's based <laughs> on
2: dot Firefox.com, the only address I've ever entered into Microsoft Edge. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
0: but, but the problem with this is this new Microsoft Edge browser is based on Chromium. So now you've got Thanks. one of the biggest companies out there trawling your system, grabbing data, based upon an, a browser from Google, who we know that they're capturing every single move. I don't think I've met a single person who has said, yeah, this is going to be great. This is going to be good for Linux. Let's get this moving and let's get this working. And then Reddit jumps in and you've got to love Reddit for when they do this sort of thing. They went, oh yeah, look, Microsoft hearts Linux so much, they've copied the Firefox um, icon. (laughs) Boy, does it look like It's basically
1: just the Firefox icon flipped upside down with different colors. It's shocking with the
0: Microsoft blue color, yeah. Yeah. And then the love keeps growing because not only have they done this, but on probably the most secure operating system out there, they're going to give us Microsoft Defender. (gasps) What are they defending us against? It's a
1: never-ending well of love.
0: And I just, I just—they're defending us against
1: their own issues. (laughs) (laughs)
0: but i just don't get why linux needs microsoft defender what possible benefit is it going to bring to us so this is where we need again ryan and noah and michael to to give us the technical details behind this why do we need defender um uh... i thought so no (laughs) (laughs) No, i i I'm, i'm convinced that we can do this
2: it just takes a little bit of creativity And frankly, a little bit of made up information, but we can get there. So uh, let's start with this. The benefit of Microsoft Edge on Linux. I doubt very much that Microsoft is just going to release Chromium with a different icon and a different name, right? Eventually, they're going to start to put their own spin on it. I think their own spin is going to come in the form of first data metrics. They're going to be doing some collecting. But I also think that uh, they're likely to implement and test things in Edge that won't be tested in other browsers, and they will work with companies to create requirements for Edge. So we saw that back in the ActiveX days, right? They came up with their this, you know, this ActiveX protocol, they have this thing that can do some more advanced scripting stuff inside of the browser, it's horribly insecure, it makes the thing crash all the time, it's a pain, it never really works, but hey, it's available. So you have a lot of companies, particularly security DVR companies that said it only works in Internet Explorer. From that perspective, I think it's beneficial to Linux because there's going to be a number of software applications, there's gonna be a number of sites that are going to be optimized specifically for Microsoft Edge if only because Microsoft is such a large company, has the capital, has the expenditure, has the brand reputation to go into businesses and say, hey, if you're going to deploy across a hotel chain for 700,000 hotels, you'd probably want to use a browser that has some industry support and good luck ever getting somebody on the phone at Google. Microsoft, we're here to help. I think there's a model in there somewhere. How valuable it is, at the end of the day, we're still operating on web standards, so I don't know. but. That's the first thing that comes to mind is we will have access to the same software package as everybody else. And so we will never we won't be the outsiders if you're running Linux on the desktop. So I think there's a small win there. I also think there's a win in that Microsoft clearly is interested in extending an olive branch to developers, right? If you looked at the questionnaire that they sent out, it was a lot of questions about web developers and what they want and what their expectations are and you know, what their activities are and what they use Linux for. So I think that general interest in Linux is good, even if, in this case, it results in essentially a no-name fluff thing. As far as Windows Defender.
1: Uh... So I can take this one. Oh, um, good, good, good. But, by the way, great point on um, the whole kind of releasing software that only will work probably on this new browser version, because we've seen Google do this, right? If you go into, say, Google Docs for whatever reason, maybe you just ate yourself, and you use their services and you use Firefox browser, things like cut and paste and keyboard shortcuts uh, with the mouse are disabled. And that, to me, is purpose. They, they do this on purpose. That's they did. my opinion. but um, And YouTube tends to upload slower and other things that they do with their services that if you have that Chrome browser, it speeds it up. And my guess is, you know, Microsoft essentially has given up here that their Internet Explorer is ever going to be taken seriously. Now it's based on Chromium, it probably is going to have some feet uh, here. But this also is probably really tough news for Firefox, who's going to be constantly battling to keep up with the changes because the standard basically is Chromium. I mean, Chromium now is going to have, what, ninety. Five percent or more of the market. I mean, it's not that much. I think but it 80, is huge. 80, yeah, it's about eighty percent, yeah, eighty. Like, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, Chrome is it's, huge,
3: but it's it's not that it's not that big. But also, the standards are already set because there's a, a consortium for web standards. So Chrome doing their own thing is blocking and breaking standards. So we already have an actual standard system in web development that Chrome and Google just decide to not care about. And that's why it's horrible that they have all these things about it's working just in these browsers or whatever. Because they're violating the standard systems that they helped even create. So,
2: now, well, they, and now they're creating new
3: standards like with AMP, right? Yeah, well, that, that that's a new standard, but also that standard was locked to Google. And now that's, right, be, exactly, that's, that's being open saying. source like, now, too. But either way. Right,
2: but what I'm saying is that's that's not good for an open web, though, even right. if it is an open standard.
3: Yes, I well, it's it's a caching system now. Like they're they're, it's not as bad as it was when they first announced AMP. It was awful, but in the in, they're they're leaning more towards not being the Google that we know and hate. They're go, they're becoming the, the 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 one that they pretend to be in the past of being the open thing. So they're like they're like, hey, I know you don't like what we're doing, but here is the thing that we're trying to get you to like. us again, you know, that's what they're yeah. kind of doing with AMP. Uh, but the yeah. uh, the Edge browser is a something that I totally. Understand why people wanted to want it to have it because it especially web developers because it allows web developers to uh, use Linux and then test on the one browser that they couldn't use uh, except for like Safari. You you can you only you have to have a Mac in order to use Safari. Even Windows, the greatest browser
1: ever. Actually, actually
2: that is not that is not true. They uh, Apple uh, this week Apple made an announcement. they released uh, Mac OS or they released something from, uh, that you can. That yeah, that you can uh, that you can virtualize now.
0: Yeah, so you can you can actually run macOS on a virtual machine in Linux. There's Hmm, been a version of Safari that ran on Windows in the past. Yeah,
1: they canceled it like years ago. Yeah. So going back to the Defender discussion, I think Defender is interesting. So uh, you got to follow me here on this tale. But back when I was, you know, uh, in Windows, uh, Microsoft Windows was just it's like it was great for business every single computer was infected with some kind of malware or virus or whatever and and it was just constant microsoft defender came out uh for the os and it did help a lot of the people who refused to go out and get something you know one of the other virus protection programs out there like webroot mm-hmm. or whatever was popular at the time Uh, Because it was built into the OS. This was also about the time that Apple was running a ton of ads. If you recall talking about, hey, I don't have viruses on Mac OS. Um, They had the two characters, one represented the PC, one represented the Mac. And so Defender was a good attempt at Microsoft, although a lot of people don't like it for various reasons, was a good attempt to attempt to remove some of that constant, you know, malware and things that were happening on a machine. Now, with Linux bringing Microsoft Defender, they are not targeting consumer level. They're not targeting the desktop. They are going after the enterprise level uh, consumer here and people who are using, for instance, Azure. And they're using Office 365. And essentially, well, this is a quote from them. Well, Microsoft putting a heavy focus on security integrations. It's built into Defender ATP, Office 365, and Azure. We have signals built into events, behaviors and things are as simple as a user logged into a machine or as complicated as the behavior of the memory layout in a Word document on the device is different to what it would normally look like. So essentially, they were looking for signals and patterns using Defender of what somebody does when they log into a server to determine, hey, you may have an intrusion, you may have something else going on on your device for enterprise level customers who are using the Azure platform, which of course is based on Linux. So therefore that's why they're bringing Defender to Linux there. And so essentially you're gonna have sensors across all the various identities and be doing some detection here. So I don't think this is something that's not needed. Again, like we've said before, all of this is self-serving, which I guess is to be expected. And it's not as very exciting to your desktop users probably. Well, I mean, there's also... Why
2: still call it Windows Defender? Why call it Windows Defender? Why not rename it Defender and say it's a platform agnostic? Well, they uh, named it Microsoft know.
1: Defender now. It's not Windows Defender. Oh, they did. Okay. Yep. Okay, good. But it, it still is
3: the Windows thing. Because, like, when you say that it's right. it's a, you know, even if it's Microsoft Defender, it's still looking for Windows vulnerabilities. And and it's looking on a Linux system. Like, because there's some issues with, like, if you look at most of the antivirus stuff for Linux, it's actually looking for Windows problems. Because it, like if you have a Linux system on a network that has a Windows network, you can accidentally infect a Windows system because it's so awful from a network is a hack. Because they, if you ha- happen to have the files on a Linux server, like you know they get they get it into a printer that happens to be running a Linux system on the printer, and they get those files there, and they can have that networked into the regular Windows platforms, and they can you know bypass it there. That's, they're not actually infecting the, the printer they're infecting the Windows network because it's Windows so mm-hmm. most of these antiviruses are just looking for those things including this windows or Microsoft Defender it's just looking for uh, problems that it itself is the cause of so yeah I, it's good that they have that and and I do think that it would be good if, if we if we had a you know a, I don't think that we necessarily need a Windows I mean an, an, not Windows but an antivirus on Linux by default, because of the structure of linux itself but also because the majority of those antiviruses are not really looking for linux-based antiviruses because there's very very few of them and most of them that do exist have already been patched a long time ago and we do have vulnerabilities every now and then but they're not like virus issues and when we do get viruses that do happen which are super rare they're patched almost immediately and just make the system more secure. Now, firewalls, on the other hand, it wouldn't hurt to have a firewall by default.
1: Yeah. So it was interesting in our uh, patron chat here, there was a question asked, and Michael, I wanted you to take this if you would, because you've talked about this before. Someone asked, isn't Chromium open source and Google's Chrome based on Chromium as edge is. So I've heard this a lot in the community. It's a, it's something that goes around where, Hey, I don't want to use Google Chrome. So I use Chromium and therefore I'm still supporting kind of open source. That's not really the case.
3: I mean, technically speaking, you are, you are supporting open source because Chromium itself is open source, which was open sourced by Google because Google makes Chromium, Google makes Chrome and Chromium. A lot of people aren't aware that Chromium is a Google project. And anything based on Chromium or just using Chromium, you're still helping Google try to get dominance over the web and do the atrocities that they are doing with the breaking standards everywhere because they can. That's really what's happening. Uh, That's why I don't promote anything that's based on Chromium, even if it's slightly better than the Google Chrome itself because of the, the fact that it's technically open source, but they're also not fully open because they sometimes do things like occasionally... We, you know, and a full open source project would never have binary blobs randomly show up in the project, which has happened with Chromium. And there's also like trademark uh, restrictions when you use Chromium and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, And the
1: first thing Chromium asks you when you load it is sign into your Google account. So there's a lot of integration with Google right in Chromium. So I don't view Chromium Brave browsers and others that are based on Chromium as a good alternative, honestly, to Firefox. Firefox is... where people need to be.
3: Firefox is the best browser possible for anyone who cares about privacy or security or just the open web in general, just the web in general, because otherwise using Chromium or Chrome or anything based on Chromium is just perpetuating the awful standard breaking stuff that Google wants to do. And that's unfortunate.
2: Well, well, here's the other thing, too. The company behind Firefox and their moral compass and their ability to have all their meetings open and being willing to address people directly and being involved in the community. They're not making from decisions on high and then pushing them down. They're actively involved with, you know, the day-to-day operations. Absolutely. The Pine Phone pre-order launch is upon us. While many are starting to get their hands on the Pinebook Pro laptops, I personally have ordered mine. It is not here yet, of course, because I just get it on the last purchase date, but I think it'll be here sometime in December. The brilliant minds over Pine64 decided to keep you drooling even more, and so they've announced they'll start taking pre-orders for the Pine Phone Braveheart edition. So starting November 15th, you can get on the list. If you're lucky enough to get on that list, you'll start receiving your phone between December 2019 and January 2020. Mass productions of the phone will begin directly after the Chinese New Year in March 2020. The Braveheart edition will also not be incomplete or a developer edition. It's a full featured phone. The team reassures everybody on the blog post that they have carried out extensive testing and on all known hardware and software issues have been addressed to the best of their ability. There is, they do, however, state the so-called Braveheart edition for a reason. If you're a first adopter, you'd expect no matter how much testing they do, this is a first generation device. It's something that has not been done. We all know everybody that tries to compete in the phone area mm-hmm. is not always successful. I mean, this is a tedious place to be in, and it's very difficult to get manufacturing and to get software and to get developers and all those things to put the kind of effort that Google and, and Apple have in their phones. And so right. uh, just be aware of that. But they've made available all of the schematics for the phone, so if you're a real tech nerd, I suppose you could uh, sit down in your basement with a soldering iron and, and seven months of time and try and bang one out yourself. Pine64 also provided updates on the Pine Time and the Pine Tab development, as well as details on the process where they currently stand, the transparency has been well received from the community, and Pine sixty four keeps bringing exciting products to the table. So check out episode where you guys interviewed Lucas uh, from Pine sixty four and got some behind the scenes information. Um, so that's pretty cool. But yeah, no, that my son is act- actively waiting for the Pine time to come to come about us and. Yeah. Um, and obviously, the, uh, the I I have the PineBook Pro on order, and I think this company, if nothing else, they do a fantastic job on communicating mm-hmm. and being honest and open with uh, with people. They they're literally the go to example.
1: Yeah,
3: their transparency
1: is impressive. I love their excitement for their own products. I love how involved they are with the community. I love that they stick to the best that they can of giving updates and saying, hey, if, if something happened, I mean, if you go through the whole write-up, they give you the whole path of everything that took place that has caused delays, even though what they've said to the community, there's been no big delay. Uh, but also, they didn't go and raise tons and tons of money and hold it hostage for months or years or anything else to get to this point. So when you do get one of these devices and you order it hopefully in November um, you're going to get your device then a, a month uh, or two later. So you're not going to be waiting for six months, a year, two years down the road to, to get it, which is fantastic. And I love the products that they, they create. I think that you have to keep in mind, though, like this is one of the difficult things about doing videos on the Pinebook Pro is the price points that they release these devices. So you can't go take the latest Pine phone and compare it to your you know, latest Samsung device yeah, it's not uh, a massive feature. flagship yeah yeah this isn't a flagship device so you do have to keep in mind the price points and what they they are developing but for what it is it's incredible
3: yeah i think it's and the fact that it's only like 150 dollars for the phone is it's just amazing so i hope to be a part of the, the braveheart edition uh batch uh because i i can't wait to get it so hopefully i can get it in time and it doesn't sell out before i get the chance to do it uh but yeah the 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 Pine phone is something that I'm super excited about. The fact that they have all the schematics open, they have like as much as possible to be open source. And uh, then, you know, obviously there's not everything the hardware can't be because, you know, there's there's even legal requirements that they're, they in order to be certified on certain frequencies, they can't even do that. Um, but uh, I'm so, so excited to see like the, you know, get my hands on uh, actually everything that Pine makes, essentially, you know, that's pretty much Pine 64 like I'm a fanboy of it I've only have one device right now but I hope to have everything at some point Yep uh, if you want to check out the episode with Lucas from Pine 64 it's an awesome interview it's definitely worth checking out it's episode 145
1: So AMD has decided that they're not they haven't quite had an exciting enough year for everybody so they went and unveiled a new thread ripper this week This has been one that a lot of people have been waiting for and excited about is getting a third gen thread ripper. So giving hardware enthusiasts, what I call the geek sweats. This is a 32 core 64 thread, seven nanometer, 3970 X. It's the ultimate enthusiast CPU and they are claiming and stating this is the fastest CPU ever. So, Quite an accomplishment. This is in addition to, of course, the 3950X, which is coming this month for $749, which gives us 16 cores and 32 threads and sticks to the AM4 form factor. So no need to upgrade your motherboard unless you want to get the PCI 4.0 on the X570. Um, but otherwise, you could just use this in any AM4 form factor that supports it in the BIOS, and you could check your uh, motherboard to see if they have a release for that if you're interested. Unfortunately, however, those who have the current Threadrippers like Zeb, our very own Zeb running a Threadripper, will have to upgrade to the new TRX-40 motherboard to try out the third gen of the Threadrippers. So, uh, Zeb, I know that uh, you like to do a lot of caravan smashing with that Threadripper. To get the next gen, you're going to have to upgrade your motherboard there. The cost of the motherboard will be on top of the $1,999 price tag. So when I say wow. this is an enthusiast CPU, this truly is an enthusiast CPU. Um, finally, if looking something a little less crazy than the 32 core Thread Ripper, you could pick up the 3960X, which is a Thread Ripper as well, but 24 cores and 48 threads, 140 megabytes of cache, which is insane. Go look at the i9s. And look at how much cash they come with. I think it's 16 megabytes of L3 cash. Wow, that's a huge um, difference. This is insane. And this one comes in at $1,399. All of this in time for the holiday season. So if you're friends with somebody like, say, Noah, like I am, he would probably send a gift like this to me. And I'm thankful (laughs) to have friends like Noah that will do that. But of course, if you're looking for something to give to your Team Red family member that's not super expensive, that may be more on a stocking stuffer size, they have the also released the $49 Athlon 3000G for entry-level computing. This is not going to be a super powerful CPU. However, it would be something that you could have a lot of fun with for that $49 price tag. And they released the RX 5500 entry-level GPU, which is set to release and expected to come in around less than $200. And this is basically to take their seven nanometer architecture on the GPU and replace the formerly RX uh, 560, 580 line, somewhere in there. Actually, probably more along the 560, 570. Um, So hopefully we will have better driver support on launch with the 5500X because the 5500XT that's out now has terrible support in Linux at the moment. But either way, get your bank account ready because all of this is dropping on November 25th nice sounds bit-
0: fantastic but just a little a little heads up and a word of warning if someone's going to go out and spend i don't know 2500 pound on this you're probably going to have to run system 76's pop os because they'll be the first ones to get out the fix you're so not just wrong. be careful you, you just can't slap it into a machine and expect to run any old linux it's going to take them a couple of months Hopefully not, but from what Ryan and I have experienced in the past, it's normally a couple of months where you just have to wait for all of that goodness to to become available. Yeah, yep.
3: but but it is ridiculous. Like the po- the power that they're promoting with this this ridiculous thread. Like I went from I upgraded to a twenty seven hundred X, which get went, me, went took me from four
1: to sixteen threads, and now this is a sixty four thread. Like that's just crazy. It's insane and that shows the power of seven nanometer right they can fit more on the uh, die than they could ever before so th- this is just it's an incredible innovation and as i understand it and i don't dislike intel i'm a huge amd fan as you guys know but intel is struggling still to get their 10 nanometer out which was back in 2008 when they announced it so they're still struggling to go on 10 nanometer amd's on seven nanometer um, Intel's in trouble here as far as competition goes for have keeping their lead in the CPU market, but this is good. We've seen prices drop, even if you're out there going to buy an Intel instead. We've seen dro- prices drop across the board uh, because of what AMD's been doing here, and this mm-hmm. just goes what we've been saying. Competition is good, and this is why. Yeah, and you could even say that AMD is AMD
3: demolishing
1: their competition. Oh my gosh, why? Why, Noah? Why does he do this to us? He likes to create problems. (laughs) You're welcome.
0: Just when you thought it was safe to tip your toe back in the waters of gaming, Steam have decided to muddy those waters. And they are now going to be launching, or thinking of launching, it's all a bit in the air at the moment, a Steam streaming service. So on top of Google Stadia, PlayStation Now, Xbox GameStream, EA with their project Atlas, Steam and Valve are going to get in because you didn't expect them just to sit back and let the competition run away with them. So according to a Twitter post from SteamDB, Valve is working on a Steam Cloud gaming based on a partner site code update which requires an addendum to terms and conditions. It will be an interesting to see what this could mean for gaming on Linux. It's going to be cloud-based. I don't know if Ryan has found out yet whether it's going to be the same as all the others where you're just renting your game and you don't really own it. But if you think about all of those people that are out there, yeah, the Microsoft Xbox, the Sony PlayStation, the Google Stadia, who would you trust more? Any of those? Or Steam, who have proven themselves to be friends of Linux.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you talk about somebody who hearts Linux, I think uh, Valve is definitely yes. that company uh, that has proved that over and over again. And, and honestly, while they do have some benefit to them, the benefit is so small for them pushing things like Proton. They literally are doing it out of love for Linux. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's not billions of dollars they're making off of Linux gaming and pushing that and putting their developers and things in that arena. I think they're hoping to turn it into something. So there is some self motivation there, but they're also benefiting everyone at the same time uh, in the meantime. So cloud based, I mean, this is where everything wants to go. And everybody is pushing their platform be the next cloud-based platform i agree with what you said zeb 100 percent i'm going to trust this over google stadia all day long because mm-hmm. valve doesn't make its money off of ads they make their money off of selling hardware and selling video games so because of that i don't have to worry as much about them just trying to steal my data and sell it to other people and or utilize it to throw ads in my way Um, and I also think that this could be huge for gaming on Linux. I still see to this day, you know, I get uh, comments on my videos saying, all right, you convinced me I want to switch to Linux now. Uh, Can I play World of Warcraft? Can I play, you know, there's always some game out there that they're wanting to play that maybe they've invested so much time and resources and things in that they can't give up Windows entirely because of. And I think when you have a cloud-based platform like that, you have a situation in which you basically can uh, play any of the games that become available on it without any hesitation. I think the biggest problem they're going to have is you have Microsoft and Sony out there buying up lots of studios. And so you may start getting into a situation much like Netflix is in, where there's lots of competition out there. And when Netflix grew to the point it has, which Valve is in a similar spot, right? They're the number one vendor out there for games at the moment. Disney and everybody's starting to pull all of their content from Netflix to make their own streaming service, and yeah. you're not going to have access to all that stuff anymore. So you're probably, you know, Steam is and Valve is gearing up for a interesting road because there's lots of competition, and there's going to probably be a lot of um, people buying up studios and not allowing their games to show up on Steam. Uh, I would guess anyways in the future. Well there's also stuff like uh Epic Epic Games is doing
3: the same kind of thing with their store. Like they they do an exclusive deals and stuff like that too. But and, and it's actually interesting because when people when Google announced the Stadia thing and when uh, Microsoft and PlayStation and Sony was like hinting r- at this kind of thing. The there was Windows users and Windows gamers who were even saying that they would rather Valve be the ones to do it. Because they know that Valve is going to, you know, provide a service that they, they they've proven tried and true that they're going to provide the service that the gamers want, and, right. and and even Linux gamers in this case now too, they they've proven over seven years or so now that they have they have the best interest for the platform, uh, not only for, they have the best interest for gaming in general, like they have the gamers in mind. Uh, so like that's why everybody looks at valve and goes yes we we trust what they're going to do because when they say they're going to do it they do it when like back in the day when when valve announced they were going to make steam people gave them like so much a hard time like this will never work and now valve is like the dominant force in gaming on on pc for sure, I think this is. If they do this, it'll be awesome. Like, this is still speculation. We don't know for sure, but you know, most of the time when we find something on SteamDB, it does turn out to be accurate. But we don't know for sure yet. Google already announced that there's going to be exclusives on Stadia, so it wouldn't necessarily help Linux. But with Valve, you can almost guarantee that even they do, a, if they even if they do an exclusive, they'll probably still make it work with Linux, which would be yeah. awesome.
2: Do you think there's any value in the fact that Google is such a massive company that their ability to roll something like this out successfully exceeds Valve's ability? I mean, Valve is a big company in gaming. Don't get me wrong. They have they have significant resources. But like compared to Google, I mean, like the amount of server infrastructure, network infrastructure alone that Google has to make that kind of thing possible. I don't know. You know, I, I just I mean, is I know- there a practical standpoint here?
1: I don't disagree with your thought process there, but you have to think about Google and just how unsuccessful it's been. I mean, there a <laughs> website that's based on when, when I'm talking about unsuccessful, I mean, with new product launches mm-hmm. and really standing behind something. So naturally you think, yeah, I mean, Google has endless amounts of money to throw at something to make it successful. But there's a whole website dedicated to all the projects Google announced and then abandoned mm-hmm. and it just scrolls, mm-hmm. scrolls and scrolls. The, the thing with Google is they give up really fast on products if they don't take off immediately and when they what they decide is something that has taken off basically is you know it goes viral in some massive way that makes them huge amounts of cash otherwise they give up on it abandon it and everybody's stuck and that's what everyone has been saying not just us on this show about Google Stadia is the biggest fear is Google's going to abandon it So, um, because they abandon everything else that they start in. So, I I mean, I think that Valve has every the gamers' hearts, like Michael said. I think they have a lot of the gamers' trust. And because of that, I think they're probably the only company out there that could compete with something like Google Stadia uh, in an effective manner. And you also have to keep in mind that everybody has so many games now who uses Valve today in, in their library. So, I mean, it may be a situation where people use a combination, but I don't think valve's going anywhere. Up next in the show is the spot software
3: spotlight section. And this is a software spotlight that's provided by one of the DLN family members. And that, uh, did the podcast host of DLN extend, uh, Nate, cubicle Nate. He says that, uh, since I'm a KDE plasma user, and I do a lot of uh, stuff in the web, it, when it comes to like researching and stuff like that, I think you should give uh, Falcon a try. It's not feature-rich and it lacks plasmas integration like Firefox has, but the ability to act and also the ability to access like DRM stuff like Netflix. But it has so much less uh, memory usage than Chrome or Firefox. And, it's, and he says I've been using it for nearly everything as of late, and it might be worth a try. I agree that Falcon Falcon's actually my second secondary suggestion for a browser. It's the this might if I'm not using Firefox or I need to use another browser for some other reason, I'm going to be using KDE Falcon because. It is. It has all the benefits of rendering, and it has, and it runs the websites, you know, as what you want them to do. But it does it so well, uh, and at the same time, it's so little resources that it's it's a great secondary browser. Hopefully, it, someday
2: it will become one of those mainstays. We've got a couple of tips and tricks for the week. Um, first of all, if you want to check your disk space, use df. Now, there's a plenty of different ways to to check disk space, and many of them. I think we tend to re- to to resort to the graphical utilities because that 's what anybody that grew up on Windows or Mac OS is useful. but the truth is dF is a really fast way from any terminal to, to to go ahead and spit out exactly what your what your free disk space is. You can also use um, the TAC h switch which will allow you to convert it from actual bytes over to something that's actually human readable, like megabytes or gigabytes, so on and so forth. Another thing you can use is uh, you can use du-tach-h to figure out the current file or size occupation of a given folder or file or something like that. And One of the things that I'll do frequently, if I'm copying a file and I'm like, I wonder if that's done and I'm only on the receiving end, I'll use the command watch, w-a-t-c-h space, tach-n, one, that means watch every one second, and then from that command, I'll pipe the du tag h command or the df command in, and when I watch the disk space stop being eaten up, now I know that file has finished copying. And so it's kind of a way when I'm on a remote server, I can see, hey, somebody started this command and started moving this data over here. I wonder when it's done, and I can kind of keep an eye on it that way. So both of those are very useful. The other thing I wanted to bring your attention to is a project called USB Kill. You can find it open source on GitHub. And this is a program that uh, it's an anti-forensic kill switch, which waits for a change in the USB ports and then immediately shuts down your computer and wipes the memory. And so the idea is that this prevents what's known as a cold boot attack, a cold boot attack being the idea that once the computer is powered off, there's still information stored in memory for a couple of moments. And if you use uh, if you cool it down, so if you were to take, you know, a little compressed air can, turn it upside down, spray it on the memory, you can actually get like five minutes. Uh, of retaining that information that they can pull it out, including your encryption keys. So this is a project you absolutely want to check out. And again, it's on GitHub. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. And um, what you'll be able to do is is check that out. And it was specifically written in reaction to the situation that occurred with Ross Albrecht. And so the the police commonly use a mouse jiggler to keep the screensaver and sleep mode from, from activating, and so you don't want to rely on built-in X security and stuff like that. You want to rely on disk encryption and then use something like this. Now, I told you at the beginning of the episode that I do have a, a couple of concerns. My biggest concern is that this entire project is written in Python, and so you're relying on the security of Python for this to uh, for this to work. Whereas in something like Tails, for example, which has a very similar feature, they're relying on the kernel features. Now, I'm a big Python fan, I think it's a great language, I think it's really useful, and I think it's got a lot of people involved in technology. I wouldn't tell you that I think it's a secure, I don't know, I trust Python itself, and certainly whoever this programmer is that wrote this, these six contributors that wrote this uh, software with 213 commits, I trust the security from Greg KH and, and Linus Torvalds a little bit more, and so they use uh, something called the kernel memory po- or the kernel poison- memory poisoning feature, which uh, the kernel, anytime memory is freed up, automatically poisons the memory so that it can't be recovered. And so uh, I'm continually working on a script to do that outside of Tails that I can just uh, I, I would like to activate it with just a hotkey. So if If and when that ever comes to fruition, if I'm ever finished with it, we'll definitely report back. But for for the moment, this is a produced project that's out there and available for people if you want something today.
1: Nice. That's a great tip. So a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening, however you do it. Also, thank you to all of those who showed up in our chats on game night, gave us a little bit of trolling here and there, participated (laughs) in the gaming, hung out with us had a great time with the network. Thank you so much for supporting us. Seeing people show up when you're doing a stream like that makes all the difference in the world. So we love our patrons as well, and we wanna give a special shout out for all of their support. We do a live show for our patrons so you can come join us and be a part of the show. There is hours of content literally that you miss out every single week on, and you can get that content for just $1, and that is darn near free. You could find that kind of money just walking down the street and picking it up off the ground. $1 is there. And we also have several new tiers for those who want to spend some more money and have some additional perks out there. We have several new tiers available for you to check out.
3: One of the higher tiers is going to have options for uh, discounts in the destination Linux net dot networks store uh, where you can get the awesome shirt and hoodie and stuff that uh, Zeb is promoting on this show. Cause like it is like, I know I'm a little biased, But it's a fantastic shirt. It really is. Yeah. And being a patron, you can get a discount uh, in the future when you get it in one of the higher tiers.
2: Speaking of support, become a part of the community by going over to DestinationLinux.network. There you'll find access to our our forms, our mumble servers. We have Linux for everyone. Das geek This Week in Linux, Ask Noah Show, Tux Digital, Zebedee Boss, uh, and new content coming like Deal and Extend. And after show podcast, diving into the topics that we cover on our shows. You probably have been sitting there at some point listening to your podcast or watching on your computer and screaming at your monitor going, no, why doesn't he realize this? This is... The thing, and then you're like, I want to participate in that, but I don't have time. I'm busy with work. I'm busy with kids. I'm busy with family. I'm busy with whatever. Well, guess what? We have hired people to do that, to argue with us. We've we've hired people to to, to double check on us and correct us and show that we really are the four greatest minds ever to support and talk about Linux. So check all of that out and you can find all of it and you can become a part of the Destination Linux family because that's what we are. We're a family, a family of Linux breathing, cult-like individuals. And you can join that by going to destinationlinux.network.
0: Check it out and become a part of the family. Love it. And so please keep back getting back to us. Um, let us know what you think or ask that burning question. Um, you can send a, a short email uh, or a video to comments at destinationlinux.org. We have a tele... Group, our Discord channel, our discourse forums, Twitter, Mastodon, and a whole host of other ways that Michael has put on destinationlinux.org forward slash contact. So please keep those um, comments coming. We love to read them, and they do make up a, a very informative and interesting conversation on the show. So keep them coming. Finally, don't forget to join our Mumble server, chat with the community, set up gaming sessions, and enjoy the Destination Linux network.
3: If you want more content, the fun doesn't stop here. We also have our own channels that you can check out. So you can go to youtube.com slash dosgeek to check out Ryan's content where he fills your brains on hardware, software, and all things Linux. You can check out Zeb's content by going to youtube.com slash And you can find him playing games like uh, Euro Truck Simulator and many other things on his Zebity Gaming YouTube channel. You can find my content at tuxdigital.com where I do an in-depth weekly Linux news podcast called This Week in Linux and other Linux-related content sometimes. Uh, Noah, you can find his on the Ask Noah show where he does a weekly talk radio show at 6pm central on Tuesdays you can join him and he'll answer your questions and uh, tech questions live and uh, be sure to go to destinationlinux.network to find out all the other content on the shows like Linux for Everyone, DLN Extend and many more to come So, yeah. also be sure to uh, like that smash button and share the show on social media
0: everybody have a great week and remember that the journey is important When it brings you to the destination, the next network.
3: (laughs) Well said. Nice. I like it. Thanks, everyone.